The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Support from this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry in service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T. In this episode, we again feature questions from you, our listeners, for Sarah, especially those questions you might not feel comfortable asking. So here we go with our second edition of Ask an Indian. Hey, Sarah. (laughs) Hey, Sherry. All right. First question. I'm going to, should I start with... um, a more light pop culture one, or do you sure. want to start with um, the, the a big one? No, we can we can do a, a light one. Okay, what do you think about the movie Pocahontas? Yeah, it's it's rough. Um, the movie Pocahontas. Well, you know, I think I, I you know, I'm not a fan, um, and at the same time, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of. Um, of Pocahontas, I guess, uh, you know, there, there's some, obviously some historical challenges with the storyline. Um, and I think the story of Pocahontas in general has been, you know, an important one in the American imagination and, and the way that it's portrayed in Disney and in other, you know, platforms, it, it's not at all, um, the story that happened. So Pocahontas, is applauded or sort of revered. You know, my challenge with the movie is that first of all, she's portrayed in a, you know, her, the figure is portrayed uh, as having some, um, you know, features that would be sort of exaggerated native features, but, but, but generally um, is like, looks like a picture of the dominant version of what beauty is, but with just darker skin, you know? So that's hard, you know, because that's also, you know, strange and not, it's not really, you know, from the indigenous point of view, looking at someone who looks like you. And and I'm sure that's true for Disney in general. I mean, the the characterization of females is a little bit strange. The characterization of an Indian princess is also a little bit strange. I mean, I'm not sure what that means in that context. You know what I mean? Like she was an Indian princess who somehow was the head of a kingdom and was gonna have a romance with one of these explorers so that he could become the king of the kingdom. Like, it's just a strange narrative that is also like, what? I mean, (laughs) 
not not very accurate, you know, which whatever it's Disney. I'm not trying to be like overly harsh on this. But but another thing is that, you know, the historical character, the actual person of Pocahontas, you know, died of a European disease at a young age. She had a difficult life. You know, she 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 did in, indeed marry um, a Caucasian from the dominant culture, but it wasn't a, a, a sweet, young, um, strapping, handsome man. It was someone that was more than twice her age. And I was saying, you know, she she died as a direct result of, you know, viruses that came from from the colonists, you know, I mean, so I, it, it's not a romantic story at all. It's a very sad story, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, wh- the the implication in the Disney movie is that, you know, there's this wonderful joining of cultures and, you know, this princess, which is, you know, from my point of view, a high status person is welcoming these, you know, these adventurous travelers. And now they're just going to go into a, a brave future, you know, which is not what happened, you know, I mean, she, you know, died in a, in a bad way, you know, as a result of this contact. And, um, I, and I don't think it's portrayed at all what was given up, you know what I'm saying? So, so, you know, the, the narrative of a trusting and helpful person, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to argue that. I don't, I don't really know. Um, yeah. but but the i but, but there isn't the the second half of that which is the betrayal um and the loss that came out of that for, for her you know and for her people i mean i don't think it's not it's not a happy ending i guess is what i would say yeah. so so you know i mean pocahontas i you know i'm not going to you know boycott pocahontas or anything like that but it is a very strange way to characterize or fictionalize, how's that, to fictionalize a really tragic story. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm struck by the fact that there's other stories in our cultural mainstream that we recognize as tragic that we would not disnify because we'd know. I mean, in a way, Sarah, like, I don't know if this is an apt analogy, but no one's ever going to make a Disney movie out of chattel slavery. Yeah. Right. Um, nobody's going to make a Disney movie out of Japanese internment. Um, and so in a way, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just what what gets Disneyfied. You know, <laughs> what stories are we does do we Disneyfy and what do we know is off limits from Disneyfication? And really, this story isn't off limits. Yeah. And, you know, I also just want to name one other thing, which is that there there is this sort of mysticism in the movie Pocahontas that is that also portrays sort of the wise Indian. You know what I mean? Oh, this mystical kind of magical person who is one with nature. And that's also very much, you know, a beloved narrative that I'm not sure is helpful. You know what I mean? Because I think, you know, there there are people who would say, hey, you know, it's bringing a Native American story to the American public. And isn't that nice? So it's like, well, it's not a Native American story. It's a, it is a story of the dominant culture that objectifies in, a Native character and, and does not characterize that character at all in an accurate way. You know, that's, I guess that's what I'd say. 
If a child will go to a loving family, why does it matter if the family isn't Native? Yeah, so um, I'm going to return to to the idea, um, the reality that the doctrine of discovery is is a system of laws and policies that was put into place uh, 500 years ago and is still in place to remove indigenous peoples from their lands. So that's the purpose of it is to is to remove indigenous peoples from their lands in all different kinds of ways. And a really effective way of doing this has been to separate indigenous families. And so we've seen this um, first in the boarding school era, removing indigenous children, putting them in institutions. Um, and that was a process of, um, you know, assimilation. Um, and uh, a lot of people died during that process. A lot of children died. Um, so that was, you know, not a simple thing. <laughs> and then and then at the end of the boarding school era, or as that era was winding down, there's also um, a move to remove indigenous kids from their from their families and to place them in white foster homes. And um, and and th this was once again, a, you know, a process that was done in concert with religious organizations or religious institutions. And at the time, so we're talking, you know, in mid 20th century, the thinking is that, you know, their families are not capable of caring for them. And this is really just looking through the lens of, you know, you have families living on reservations, you know, CPS is coming to take a look to make sure that they're, they're able to adequately care for that child. And, um, if, if the family is poor, then they're finding that, you know, they, they say, no, that this child is neglected and remove them to indigenous or, or to, um, the homes of white families. So there was, you know, this is, it's one thing when it's one or two families, but when it's systematically done across the country, what that is, is a form of ethnocide. It's the, the intentional removal of, of indigenous children, which amounts to the removal of indigenous people from their lands. It's just another step in that process. And so uh, on the face, this question um, is not, it's not really about an individual child in an individual home. Um, if you have a child that needs a family, a loving family, and and the best possible opportunity for that child to be in a loving family is a white family. You know, of course, that that's the, making that family possible. There's nothing wrong with that, and I want to be really clear about that. But that's that's not, unfortunately, that's not the narrative. And I think that in our country, what we often want to do is boil things down to the individual level. And what I'm talking about is systemic. Um, and something that's at the systemic level. So from my point of view as an indigenous woman, from a sy systems point of view, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act was created in 1978 to make sure that indigenous children would be able to remain among their people. And so what, what the Indian Child Welfare Act says is that, um, that child protective services um, will ensure that a child who is who is removed from their family has an opportunity to be with an extended family member first. That's their their first best placement. And I want to say that I believe this this 
this is common best practice across the whole nation now. I mean, this is best practice for every child, regardless of what their background is, that really we want we want to keep the family unified, you know, for the child to re- be able to remain in their family unit. So, but the Indian Child Welfare Act says that if if there isn't a family member, um, an extended family member that, that they can stay with, that they could stay with another tribal member and that that should be opted first. And if there isn't an opportunity, that they, they could then be taken in by the family in another tribe. So this, this is motivated um, also by public health best practices because we know that language, culture, um, identity are protective factors against um, social problems like drug use, alcoholism, depression, suicide. Um, culture, language, and extended family are protective factors against those things. So, so, so the Indian Child Welfare Act provides these supports to an indigenous child to ensure that they're going to have that, those protective factors. However, if there isn't a placement within their extended family or within their, their tribal community or another native tribal community, then they could be placed in a white home. And it's, you know, and it's perfectly legal to do that. I think part of my advocacy around this issue is saying that as indigenous kids are removed from their families, they are often not put into adoptive homes, but rather into foster homes. And that's most kids in this, in, in um, child protective service in the United States. So when we're saying, Hey, you know, being in a loving adoptive home, every kid wants to be in a loving adoptive home. But unfortunately, most kids who, who are separated from their families go into foster care. And so, um, although there may be instances where a, a native kid is going to be placed in a white family and that's great and it works out great, you can't then generalize that and say, um, you know, this is the best option because, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act is there to, to provide protection for native youth so they can remain in the most protective environment that there is from the Native American point of view. So, and that, that is a structural concern because if that Indian Child Welfare Act is removed, then Native kids will be removed from Native homes and go into the dominant culture and lose the protective factors and essentially be removed from their, from their homelands. I'm not exactly sure how these podcasts will be, um, you know, rolled out, but we are, we have done a whole podcast on the Indian Child Welfare Act and this issue that will either already have been published by the time you hear this or will be published soon after you hear this. So please listen to that episode because we go into a lot more detail about how important this is. Native Americans immigrants too. They moved around a lot. For example, the Potawatomi were originally from the Northeast. Okay. So, yeah, so um, the, 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 the name indigenous is really talking about being um, the first people of a land. And so when, when we think about Native American people um, traveling um, on their own homelands, um, connected to seasonal food gathering or hunting, um, that is uh, in the context of a different 
life way. So what I mean by that is to say, you know, in, in the dominant culture and, and, you know, the way we think about our world now in the, in the capitalist economy, you live in a place, you stay in that place, you have a job and you go to that job and, th- and that's what you do. And if you move, um, you move across the country to another job and another home that's also static. Um, in the original um, cosmology for many tribes, not all of them, but for many tribes, they, they had large areas, um, that they traveled across in, in the process of seeking a livelihood. So when I say that, what I mean is food gathering and hunting and looking for, um, medicines and, um, you know, materials that they use for clothing and homes and et cetera. And so, so that process of, of, um, having larger land bases and moving around that land base, I don't think of that as being sort of, um, yeah, I don't think of that as being, um, an immigrant. And, and so, uh, the other thing I would say is if you're talking about forced removal, um, like the, the trail of death, um, from, from one part of the country to another, um, I, I would not characterize that as, um, as immigration. I would characterize that as forced removal. So that uh, to me, I would, I would characterize that more as being placed in a refugee camp. Right. And then there's what I would call maybe like more forced migration. So, um, people on the land that my family came to in Pennsylvania, you know, they're, they're basically forced to keep moving further West, whether it's a forced march or not, because they just are running out of hunting space and they're running out of the space to practice their life ways, as you put it. Yeah. And, and, and I want to say in terms of lifeway, that's really seeking a livelihood. It's the process of seeking a livelihood. So it's a different kind of economy. It's not that there's no economy. It's a different economy um, from capitalism in the way that we think about it in the 21st century. So, um, yeah, so I don't. So so in terms of Native Americans being immigrants, you know, I, I would also say that the way we characterize North America, you know, the United States is a country, you know, Native American people. Um, are in, in the 21st century, um, you know, are citizens of the United States. And so to think of, um, of, of moving from one area of the country to another, um, I wouldn't think of that as immigration necessarily. It would be like, you know, I live in Washington state. If I took a job in Florida, I wouldn't see myself as an immigrant to Florida, right? I would be moving within my own territory. So, I mean, that's just sort of a strange, what I'm saying is that's sort of an issue of scale to me to think of Native Americans as being immigrants because they're moving across North America. Um, I don't think of my, you know, I don't think of, uh, I don't think, I don't think people in the dominant culture think of themselves that way, that they're immigrating to another state. So it's kind of strange to say, hey, we're going to, you know, there's sort of a different way of characterizing Native American people. They're different, you know, well, this is, these are the national boundaries we have at the moment. And, um, yeah. Well, I think this question kind of follows on that one. Can I become indigenous to my place by going back to the man, back to the man? Can I, by going back to the land or loving the earth or doing ecological restoration? And I asked that because I've actually heard, I, I did a permaculture class, an indigenous man came and talked to us all white people and said that, you know, you need to become indigenous to your place by basically he was saying by learning to love it and know it and 
um, really know it and then seek to live in relationship, right relationship with it. So I, but I think, you know, that uh, concept I've heard, I've heard other white people talk about this concept of becoming indigenous. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really complicated um, question. I'm going to do my best to take a stab at it here. And once again, I can only speak from my own point of view. Um, When, whenever you talk about a, um, you know, in these terms, um, you know, thinking about a person moving from one, from one identity or group to another, um, sometimes it's helpful um, to, to think about how this, um, how this would work if you were doing it in another group. So, I mean, I, I could, I could, you know, ask, you know, could I become, you know, a member of the dominant culture simply by, um, you know, going to a suburb and buying a home in a suburb and going to a, a job at a, at a firm or at a big box store and buying an SUV. And does that make me part of the dominant culture? And, you know, I would say the answer is no. Um, and, you know, and the reason is not because of an individual level process. It's because of the, 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 um, the context that we share. So no matter what I do or what I wear or where I work or the words that I say, um, I am a person of color and um, that is because the lens of the dominant culture views me as a person of color and, and there's nothing I could do to alter that. So and I'm not being fatalistic about that. What I'm doing is saying that race matters in our country. And, um, and so um, I am going to deal with um, barriers, um, a lack of access to justice, unequal representation as a result of being a person of color. And that's just, that's just how it is. And so I think there is a a romantic notion that if you're a member of the dominant culture, you are free to take on the identity of other um, groups if you want to. And the fact is, um, regardless of, of who is on the land now, there was an original first people and that first people historically, um, is according to, um, the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people entitled to, um, just and adequate compensation for the loss of that land. Mm. Understand what I'm saying? So, so to say, oh, you know, I'm going to indigenize myself is kind of a strange thing to say when you're talking about identifying with an oppressed group. Right. So, so, so what I'm saying is, you know, and I, and I want to be careful because, you know, maybe that term, you know, I'm going to indigenize is really about the relationship I'm going to have with the land. And I get that because I do think, you know, we want to be in, you know, regardless of, of your culture or your race, we want to be in right relationship with land and with the earth and with the systems of life. And I am not trying to poo poo that. I, I am saying that I think it's dangerous to try and say, you know, I am taking on the worldview or the identity of an indigenous person because that's not possible to do if you're not also going to take on the burden of racism that goes along with being indigenous. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that, yeah. there is a burden there too. And if you're not dealing with that, then you you're not really living out that story. So um, you know, and I think 
and if you say that I'm indigenous to this area because of the way I'm comporting myself or because of my lifestyle, which I, I, I admire in some regards, uh, trying to live sustainably and do the right thing, all of that I admire. But I think to say I'm indigenizing myself is dismissive of the fundamental rights of the first people that were there. You know, and it, it's another layer of erasure. No, that makes a lot of sense, Sarah. And I think I loved what you said. You're honoring the impulse behind it because I think there are lots of, you know, white people who have been really cut off from this sense of having a relationship with land and with non, non-human beings. And, you know, there's this desire to reconnect. And I think we can honor that desire, but we don't have to do it by by sort of um, pilfering or referencing indigenous people. I mean, I think the reason it happens is because we look around and see like, who has actually still got an intact sense of, of right relationship with land and a way that feels like seems from the outsider's view, like it seems more connected and more, uh, you know, You know, it's this thing that really I think a lot of white people in the dominant culture have lost and aren't connected to. But we can honor that desire without referencing indigenous people. Does that make sense? The next question is kind of, again, similar. My great grandmother was Native American, so I have, quote unquote, Indian blood am I considered Native American? And again, what does it mean to be indigenous? I want to tell you, there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about this, and I can only speak for my own. And so, and I I tread carefully here because, you know, there are many indigenous peoples who have points of view about this. And, And what I am going to say is this, indigenous peoples continue to be under threat in the United States, continue to lose land every year, continue to be the group um, that that faces the most structural barriers, um, the least access to justice, most likely to be incarcerated, least likely to own a home, least likely to graduate from high school. All of these issues remain for indigenous peoples today as a result of the doctrine of discovery, which is still the law of the land. And if you claim indigenous identity, are you ready to claim that mantle of seeking justice for your people? Um, If the answer is yes, let's go. Give me a call. Let's do this together. Um, I'm I'm all in. Let's do it. Um, If you want to honor your ancestry by now... um, picking up this mantle and saying, yes, I am ready to rise up with native people of this land and seek justice for my people, then let's do it. If you are writing a report, (laughs) and this is interesting, or you are, you know, it's good, it's good um, cocktail party, uh, 
uh, conversation or it's, you know, trying to, to, to get an edge on a job application or college admittance, um, then that is, you know, I'm not going to say whether it's okay or not. I don't know, but it's not okay with me. It's not okay with me. Um, because to me, the, the fundamental core of being indigenous for me, I'm not speaking for all indigenous people, looking at the world through a lens of a collective and with interdependence with nature and all life. I'm not sure what it means to be indigenous away f- outside of that identity of being part of a people. And if you are ready to be part of that people and you you have native american ancestry that you're proud of and you're ready to explore that no matter how small that amount of blood because we use blood quantum in this country which is I could go on and on about that another topic but regardless of how small that blood quantum is <clears throat> if that's a journey you're on you know I applaud you um and that is being ready to to join in um, seeking justice for your people. Anything else? I mean, I, I don't understand. Anything else is strange for me. I'm not gonna. I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know how to. Um, how to excuse it? I guess is what I would say. Right. So. Why do so many people claim to be Cherokee, like Elizabeth Warren, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some historical grounding for that. Um, and part of it is the the nature of the Cherokee um, people during um, during the process of settlement and colonization. That is to say, um, being um, a large tribe and um, uh, fairly. Um, open to, um, to relationship with folks from the dominant culture. So, you know, but I'm not going to speak to all of that because, um, although you could Google it, anybody who's listening, you could Google that. Um, I'm not going to speak to that cause I'm, I don't happen to be Cherokee and I don't want to, you know, speak for that whole people, but you know, I think, I think Cherokee is kind of a well-known nation. And so, um, and so people who, whose ancestors are part of the settlement, um, you know, the, the westward expansion have stories in their family about that. But I think at the end of the day, it just becomes, you know, from my point of view, it's just sort of an easy, um, you know, it's just a well-known group. It's just the, the best known group. So it's like, oh yeah, I have a, I have a, a, um, a Cherokee ancestor and it, it, in the native community, it's kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's well known that people do this. <laughs> It's, it's kind of, it can be, um, yeah, it can be, it can be a little bit hard to, um, swallow if you're not in relationship with your people, struggling with your people, connected to your people, um, striving to honor your ancestors with your people, because being Native American is, um, it's about a lot of things. Um, and none of them are simple or cheap. It's not an identity you can flirt with or play with or put on like, you know, some kind of fast fashion piece of clothing and take off again. No. And I want to also say this. I know 
many Native American people. I, I am in relationship with many Native American people who are fair and fair haired and have um, blue eyes or green eyes and they are champions for their people. Mm. This is not about skin tone. Mm. You know, they are doing it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there are all kinds of peoples from around the world, all different tribes, all different nations and peoples, um, all of them struggling for their people and for um, the sacred, um, the sacred um, charge of preserving the earth for the generations that are yet to come. Mm. And I, you know, those are, those are my people. So Sarah, I'm wondering if you have time for one more question. I can do my best. <laughs> is this is, yes. Is wearing Indian jewelry or hanging a dream catcher or burning white sage cultural appropriation? Okay. So once again, I'm going to speak for myself. I know that this is much discussed and there are a lot of smart um, people that I respect who have opinions about this. So I'll, I'm not going to speak for everyone. I'm just going to speak for myself. Um, let's start with wearing Indian jewelry. So Indian jewelry is um, where I live and um, often where, and where I'm from is made by um, native artists. And um, it, it is made for people to wear. So supporting these artists um, in part is, you know, you're supporting them by wearing the jewelry that they make. So I, I don't see how buying a project that or product, a consumer product that's made by a native person is, is cultural appropriation. I, I don't see that. I mean, I think it's beautiful. It's made to be worn. Um, if native, um, uh, if native artists were only if people only bought stuff if only other natives bought stuff by them you know they wouldn't they wouldn't stay in business for very long cuz there aren't very many of us okay so i don't really get that and hanging a dream catcher same thing i mean native artists are you know creating these things for um for you know people to buy and um yeah i mean i i don't really see that as an issue and then burning white sage for me, it depends on the context. I mean, if you're going to burn sage because to you, um, you think it smells good and it's beautiful and, you know, and there's some, um, something about that that relates to you. I think that's, yeah, I mean, whatever. I think it's fine. I mean, I think the challenge for me is when you say, you know, I've been trained as a medicine practitioner and I am now purifying you, you know, like that's like, that's strange. Just because you wear a stethoscope doesn't make you a doctor. <laughs> You know, but wearing a stethoscope doesn't make you a pretender either. It just means you're wearing a stethoscope. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think we can just say it like that, you know? So whatever you like white sage, you want to burn it, do it. Like, I don't see the issue. Well, so I think oh, go ahead. cultural appropriation is more about, this is me. Again, I speak only for myself. Cultural appropriation is making something like Indian jewelry, saying that it's made by native practitioners or passing yourself off as a native practitioner and then selling it for money. That's appropriation from my point of view, where you are actually commercializing something, especially from a vulnerable group so that you yourself can advance financially. I think that's absolutely cultural appropriation or, or even if you're doing this for prestige. So I will, I will, I will now throw some of my colleagues under the bus and say, I've known lots of researchers. You know, you've, you probably know something about me if you've listened to other podcasts, you know, I've done research among indigenous people for many years. 
<clears throat> and I know lots of researchers who've gotten their master's degrees or PhDs studying Native people. And, you know, they're maybe not getting rich doing that. But what they are doing is they're advancing their career. They're not doing anything to ensure that the lives of the Indigenous peoples are being served by them. And that's, you know, that is cultural appropriation from my point of view, because you are benefiting either in prestige or you're advancing um, on the backs of a vulnerable group. And that that I will never agree is okay. That was really helpful, Sarah. I've heard and read a lot about cultural appropriation, but I feel like the way you just distilled that for me personally is really helpful. So thank you for that. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDOD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.